How many of you have ever said or heard somebody say that they've seen the Lord? There's been a few people I've ran into over the years that have told me that they saw the Lord. And it's not language we use a whole lot. Or they saw God in some capacity. We tend to naturally kind of think that person might be a little crazy, and, and usually for good reason. But the text we're looking at today, uh, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Now, that's significant. One of the ways we say it, and use, we use language like, uh, maybe you've heard somebody say, well, I, I saw God at work in this person today. Or I saw evidence of, of what the Lord was doing uh, in this situation or in this relationship. In some ways, we're communicating the same thing, just without quite the same boldness to say, I saw the Lord. Uh, it, it, it doesn't make us feel as quite uncomfortable. But Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. That's significant. So we're going to look at that. Isaiah chapter 6 is where we'll be. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm just going to be honest with you and tell you right now. I don't know if we're doing a couple verses or if we're doing the whole chapter. It's not a big chapter. Uh, we're going we're gonna to go a little bit as the Lord leads us here this morning. I've got enough to get us probably from chapter 1 through chapter 66, but we're just going to look at chapter 6. So, if you're familiar with the passage, it's if you've spent much time in the Bible, you may be. It's a common passage. It's a passage I've preached multiple times. Uh, and if you're not familiar with it, you're going to look at this and you're, you're probably going to have a lot of questions. And if you are familiar with it, you may have even more questions. Um, but I can assure you I'm not going to be able to answer all those today. Uh, I don't have all of the answers uh, or the ability to do that. But I point that out to say that we're trying to answer kind of one question. As we've been working through this series all year, as we're looking at the story of God, what is the story of God in each one of these texts that we come to, each one of these passages? What is God communicating about himself that we need to see, that we need to understand, that we need to hear? So we're going to try to answer that question. As we've worked from the beginning uh, of Scripture, that's what we've tried to answer. As we looked at the creation narrative, we wanted to see that it was God's story, not the story of science. As we looked at Adam and Eve, that it was God's story, not Adam and Eve's story. As, as we looked at the flood, it wasn't the story of Noah, it was the story of God as he brought judgment and worked through the life of this one man and his family. Same with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It wasn't their story, it was God's story as he interacted with these, these human agents to bring about his purposes and his plans. All the way through, as we've worked our way all the way up till now, as we worked through the judges, it wasn't them so much as what God was doing in them as a result of what was happening in, in, in his nation, in the world. The king's the same. It wasn't Saul's story or David's story or Solomon's story. It's the story of God as he interacts with his creation, with his people, through these human agents, these human characters, to, to reveal himself. All of this, he's, he's working in these people. And, and it's recorded for us and preserved for us in Scripture. And so we're looking to answer that question. What what is the story of God in this particular text? And this this scene, as I turn to this page, 
What is God communicating about himself that, that I, I need to grasp, that I need to understand, that I need to see? And how does that impact my life? So that's what we're looking at today, Isaiah chapter 6. Um, and we're just going to leave it at Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Isaiah served as a prophet uh, for the southern kingdom. So the kingdom is split at this point. We've talked about that a little bit. Uh, Israel has split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Isaiah is a prophet primarily for the kings in the southern kingdom. Uh, and he serves during the reign of four different kings. And so uh, what we come to today is the end of the first king that he served as a prophet during that time period. So we're about 800 years before Christ. Uh, this particular scene takes place around 740 B.C., give or take. There are parallel accounts uh, that you can look at with this in Second Kings uh, and Second Chronicles. So Second Kings chapters 15 through 20. In 2 Chronicles chapters 26 through 32, you can uh, turn there and you can and see parallel accounts of, of what was happening uh, during Isaiah's ministry. Now, let's look at verses 1 through 4 to begin with. Chapter 6, verse 1 reads, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Let's pause there. There is a lot happening in this scene yet at the same time there's a lot that's really left unsaid isaiah enters into the presence of god he says i saw the lord and in that we don't know exactly what the lord looks like from isaiah's description look at the everybody turn around and look at the curtains everybody see those curtains hanging see how they hang down at the bottom they kind of bunch up Isaiah describes the the hem of his garment, of of this king that he sees sitting high on a throne. The the hem of this garment fills the entire temple. So it's just a piece of that. It's bunched up a little bit at the bottom. We've looked at those curtains before and thought, what are we going to do with it? They're bunched up. It's kind of annoying. We don't know what to do with them. And Isaiah describes just the hem of that garment of the king that he sees as he enters into the presence of God, fills the entire temple. There's been a couple of times I'm a little frustrated that that sticks out six or seven inches. But it's so small. One of the things that Isaiah is communicating is, is the scale of God. Most of you have heard me preach enough to know that I get emotional. It's not uncommon. It is uncommon that I get emotional before I preach, which is what I did this morning. Um, so we're going to work through this. I think it's significant. It's not the primary point of the text, but it's a significant point. The scale of which Isaiah sees and recognizes God is so far greater than I think what we consider as we enter into the presence of God in our daily lives. It's significant. The hymn 
of his robe filled the temple. High, elevated, above everything. And then there's the seraphim. We don't really know what these are. Much more than what we have here. They may be as similar as uh, heavenly beings as Ezekiel describes or as Daniel describes uh, in each of their accounts. Uh, The word literally means burning ones, seraph, burning ones. But they're these heavenly beings with six wings. With two they cover their face, with two they cover their feet, and with two they fly. And Isaiah's point really is less about what they are or what they look like, but what they're doing. To cover their face and to cover their feet is, is really seen as a sense of, a, a, of humility to be in the presence of God. And they seem to be calling out one to another. It's not just a, a, one, like a, a one-time thing that's said, but it's a refrain that seems to be going back and forth when you look at the language. Holy, holy, holy. In the Hebrew language, it, it's a way to express a superlative is to repeat it, to express a, a, a sense of something is important, is to say it over and over again. It sounds a little strange to us, but we do that when you think about conversations that you might have. Uh, uh, you've received or given good news before. Think about this. You go to the doctor. He comes in. He checks you out. He sees something, uh, and he's like, we need to run some more tests. I'm a little concerned about this. And so they run some more tests, and you come back to the doctor. They've got the results in, and, and he tells you good news. It's all clear. And you say, oh, great. That's great. Oh, it's great. That's so great. Like, you don't really know what else to say, right? But you're communicating how great it is. It's the same idea. It's the same concept. Holy, holy, holy. Holy, holy. Completely set apart. A cut above the rest. Not, not in a, uh, a sense of a, a stairs. Sometimes I think we, we consider the holiness of God in, in, a, in a stair-step manner. That, that the lowest of, of all creation, whatever it may be you would consider, maybe vegetation, is at the bottom, and then there's, there's animals, and then there's human beings, and then the next step up is God, as if it kind of goes in ascending order. Part of what Isaiah is communicating, and, and that he's high and elevated, he's lifted above everything else, the hem of his robe fills the entire temple. And this is the most significant, not just the scale, but who he is and what he is, is that he's holy. That there's nothing else like him. No one else like him. That he's completely other. I think part of the reason that, that we we have little of Isaiah's account of this, it, it's so much, but yet there's so many details that, that I would want to ask. But I would imagine that it's difficult to communicate that, to put it into words. And so Isaiah is, is limited on the words that he has that he can even express of what he's seeing and what he's experiencing. 
Thank you, sir. Started me sucking up snot in this microphone. My apologies. The whole earth is full of his glory. It says, in the foundations of the threshold shook. This is verse 4. At the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Dave and I, neither, neither one of us are big on like, lights and smoke and like church services. But if there were ever a text that would support a smoke show, today would be the day. We could have done it. But the mess is up my allergies, so I didn't want to do that. Everything about what Isaiah sees and hears communicates the significance of who he's just come into contact with. And he tells us who that is. Everything that he sees and hears communicates the significance, the size, the scale, the, the, the absolute, complete, total holiness of God. That there's none like him visually to be heard. That this is it. And Isaiah continues, and we have his response. Verse 5 says, And I said, Woe is me, for I'm lost. Some translations say, Ruined. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah enters into the presence of God. He has a vision of God with such clarity that he sees the holiness of God so clearly that what it reveals to him is his own sinfulness. It reveals to him, it reminds him of where he stands before this holy God. And he's not saying just, my lips are unclean, I've said a few bad things. It's expressing the idea that that what comes out of his mouth uh, is expressing what's in his heart. He's ruined, he's undone. There's nothing that he can do. Woe is me. I might as well be dead. I've, I've entered into the presence of the king, the Lord of hosts. There, there's nothing that can save me. Then one of the seraphim, verse 6, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. And your sin atoned for. Isaiah finds himself in the presence of God. This magnificent, enormous, holy. Something other than he's ever seen. Isaiah wasn't unfamiliar with God before this scene. This is chapter 6. There's five other chapters prior to this. Isaiah is not just coming to know the Lord for the first time in this moment. Now, there are actually some who would argue that maybe this is a, a, a call of salvation. That because it's not 
placed at the beginning, it should be at the beginning, that Isaiah just put it in the wrong place. I tend to think that this is where it's supposed to be and it has some significance here and that this particular experience that Isaiah has, he's familiar with God, he's served God prior to this, but this particular experience he has brings a new clarity, a new focus about the significance of who God is. And it has significance specifically at this point in time because of of how it begins in the year that King Uzziah died. And it's bookended with chapter 7, verse 1, in the days of Ahaz. Two kings, two different kings, a, a, a king and his grandson, Jotham, Jotham, however you say that, is actually kind of falls in between there. But Uzziah was a good king, relatively speaking. He brought uh, stability. He reigned for 52 years. Prosperity. He, he ruled kind of with strength. He was, he was well respected. Maybe not the greatest king, but people enjoyed the fact that he was there and he was serving in that sense. At a minimum, serving for 52 years brought some stability to Israel, to the, to the nation, to who they were. Uzziah died. Dave mentioned we've, you know, we've just had a change in leadership, or at least in some cases it's been a change in leadership. At a minimum, the, the, the roles that do change, they're interacting with maybe people that have still been there, but anytime there's an election, it brings about instability. People don't know how to respond. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to think. They don't know what to say. Some people think they know all of those things, and they say all of those things. But it, it brings about this uneasiness. The king had served for 52 years. We Recently, England had their queen pass away. How many years was she the queen? Seventy? Okay. I knew somebody would know that. People don't know what's next. Even though there's succession there in place, 70 years she reigned as the queen. This king reigned for 52 years. They were, they were okay. They were comfortable. They were kind of set. There was some prosperity in the land. And now that's all changed. And then you look in chapter 7, verse 1, and you see that Ahaz is the king there when we pick up at the end of this kind of this entire scene here in chapter 6. And he's not a good king. He, he doesn't rule with strength. He's weak. It brings instability. Uh, his time as king is characterized by war. And one of the pieces that, that I think God is communicating in the, in the sense that he was communicating at this time to the people that would read this in Isaiah's day all the way till now to us is that it doesn't matter who is king. It doesn't matter who the governing authority or power is. Is that there is... One God who sits on the throne and he rules regardless of whatever else is happening. And that's, that's significant for Isaiah. That's significant at that moment in Isaiah's life because what God is going to ask him to do is not particularly pleasant. We'll get to that briefly in just a moment with this mission. But Isaiah needs to know that that God is far bigger and far greater and far holier than any physical earthly king who serves. That he is absolutely, completely holy. That he is set apart unlike anything else that Isaiah has ever experienced. Because this will, this will allow Isaiah to order his life around what's coming next. And to be confident with that. 
Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And the seraphim take the coal and touch his lips and tell him that his guilt is taken away. That it's been atoned for. It's it's covered. It's removed. That, that, That what his sin would do to him and God, that that's been satisfied. We're going to get there in just a second to what this really is. John actually interprets this passage for us in his gospel that I I want to get to in just a moment. Isaiah, having this experience, having this, this coal brought to him, placed upon his lips, purifying him, removing his sin, taking away his guilt. He, he sits down, he, he's an observer for a moment of this conversation. He says in verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Now, I've heard this passage preached in a lot of different contexts, in a lot of different settings, and and often it's preached to kind of inspire people to, to take up the mantle of missions, particularly international missions, but missions of any kind. Here I am, send me. We want the whole church. We're going to go. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong, but I don't think it's necessarily what Isaiah is trying to communicate. Isaiah has just entered into the presence of God, this great, huge, massive, holy, holy Holy God, he recognized his sin, that it, that it would bring nothing but death to be in the presence of, of this holy king. And his sin is removed. And now he's just an observer for just this, this brief moment. As this conversation is taking place. A conversation I, I think is the Trinity. Who will go for us? And Isaiah's kind of like, here I am. Send me. Like he could do nothing else. It's not a rallying cry to motivate you and inspire you, to to charge you and fire you up. It's, It's what else can you do when your sin has been removed? There's nothing else. You can do nothing else. Isaiah was undone before God, and he says, God, here I am. Whatever you would like to do with me, send me. So God gives him this mission. And I alluded to the fact that it's not particularly an exciting mission. And we're, we're not going to dig into all of this. Uh, and there's, we can talk about it. There's a lot of questions here. But he says this, uh, picking up in, in verse 9. It says, and he said, go and say to the people. So this is God said, go and say to the people, as he's talking to Isaiah. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. And blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn 
and be healed. Turn with me to John chapter 12. Chapter 12, uh, beginning, let's do verse 37. Just to understand where we're at in the, the context of this, as you are in chapter 12, Jesus has come into Jerusalem, it's the final week of Jesus' life, it's the beginning of that, that final week, and he's going to the cross. The cross is before him, it's coming It's inside. It's just days away. Verse 37. Reads this way. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Now this is John, Jesus' dearest friend, the beloved disciple. He is interpreting what we just read in Isaiah. First verse, actually not specifically from that text. It says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, now this is directly from what we just read in chapter 6, verse 10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn and would heal them, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is his and him in this text? Yeah, it's it's Jesus. John has just been speaking about Jesus. It's not God the Father, though God the Father may have been there. It it it, it it's Jesus. Isaiah sees the king. The king is Jesus. This is eight hundred years before the incarnation of Christ. Isaiah steps into the presence of Jesus. His sin is removed by Jesus. John gives us his interpretation of what that text was speaking about and who that text was speaking about. And we see that that 800 years before Jesus is born, that Isaiah has this encounter with Jesus. And this encounter with Jesus completely determines it, 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 it directs, it fuels Isaiah's worship of God. And it gives Isaiah the, the ability to order his life around God's purposes for his life. A right, clear, Accurate vision of who God is and His holiness will always lead to this response. Well, it'll lead to this response or one other. It can it can lead to a response of humility and worship and recognizing your sin and that you're undone and that you can do nothing of your own and that you need forgiveness of your sin, or you could come to a place and in, in that you still recognize the holiness of God but you reject that. It's, it's either a response of humility and worship or pride and rebellion. 
that you'll recognize a need for a Savior, or you'll try to be your own. At least partially, what Isaiah is trying to communicate, and what I think, at least maybe for no one else in this room but myself, needed to see this week. Was that Jesus is far greater than I tend to approach him. That he's holy, holy, holy. I could probably talk about this for a few more hours if anybody wants to stick around. Uh But we're going to leave it at that. Let me pray for us. And we're going to sing one last song. Lord, you are holy. And we are not. Through your life, death, and resurrection. You offer forgiveness. You extend grace. Lord, for that we are beyond grateful. We're limited in our ability to communicate what we see in our experience with you. God, may we be aware of of your activity all around us throughout our days. May we not be like those that Isaiah would preach to. That they would see but not understand or perceive. God, may we have eyes that see and ears that hear and a mind that understands and perceives what you're doing and who you are and the work that you're doing around us, Lord. May we interact with you and your work. Because, Lord, we have nothing else apart from you. Lord, we're here because of you. Send us. We pray all these things. For sure.